Hi, this is Jamie Stokem, host of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Today, we're with Arlen Schumer, pop culture historian. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. Hey, Jameis. Thanks for having me on, man. Okay, and like you said, have fun introducing yourself. Yeah. Well, my name is Arlen Schumer. I'm actually an illustrator, member of the Society of Illustrators in New York, and I work in a comic book style. And at the same time, I have a sort of twin career as a pop culture historian. I just got my MFA so I can teach this kind of pop culture at the college level, hopefully. And my three areas of interest that are like my three children, you can't decide which you love more, but is comic book art history. I run three Facebook groups on comic book art history. The Twilight Zone, we just had the 60th anniversary celebration in Rod Serling's hometown of Binghamton. And I give a kind of multimedia lecture on the Twilight Zone that posits, posits it as the middle ground between 20th century surrealism that preceded it and modern art and popular culture that followed it. I consider the Twilight Zone the father of American popular culture. And then my third area of interest is Bruce Springsteen, his music, his life, his career. I was art director of his first fan magazine when I was still at Rhode Island School of Design as a graphic design major in the late 70s. And I recently lectured on all three subjects in New York City at a beautiful cabaret theater, the Triad Theater. And if people go to my website and my YouTube channel, all of these um, recent lectures especially are, have all been captured on video. And I'm assuming at the end of the show you can give certain links and whatever, but basically all of my work is pretty much out there or on my website. Cool. I'm, not, I'm going to backtrack immensely because I was going somewhere differently with this interview. But uh, you mentioned uh, Twilight Zone as the border ground between surrealism and the pop culture. Well, in psychedelia, modern art, popular culture, television, movies, you name it. You know why? I can connect any modern science fiction, fantasy, horror product. I can trace it back to Twilight Zone in less than six degrees of Serling, as I like to pun on six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Right. But I truly believe that, and when we, you know, if we talk about it in depth, like I said, you know, all of our modern fantasy and science fiction and horror creators, whether it's Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, David Lynch, J.J. Abrams, Lindelof, all those guys, all are Serling's metaphorical children. You know, he dies in 1975 thinking he was a failure, thinking that the Twilight Zone didn't matter. That the is year so 1975 wrong. is the year Spielberg does Jaws. It's the year Stephen King does Carrie. It's, you know, David Lynch was in Philadelphia shooting a racer head. If Serling had only lived literally a handful of more years, and he only died at the age of 50 from all those cigarettes he smoked, right. he would have seen what I call his metaphorical children come to the pop culture fore with the influence of the Twilight Zone. You know, Stephen King wrote a nonfiction overview of the science fiction, fantasy, and horror worlds called Dance Macabre. came out in 1983, really good. And he has a whole chapter on the Twilight Zone. And he talks about how Serling 
lit the fires like a spark plug, the imaginations of that generation. All those guys, Spielberg, Lucas, they were all teenagers when the Twilight Zone hit. The perfect age to have their minds blown and expanded by the Twilight Zone. And like I said, you can look at all their works and trace them back to Twilight Zone. Yeah. I mean, yeah, admittedly, as a comic book geek, I find it sort of interesting that the sci-fi shows were taking off just as um, Vernon, with his book of, uh, Seduction of the Innocent, was actually killing off a lot of the comic books that sort of linked into, really linked in well to the Twilight Zone. The EC horror movie, uh, comics, for example? Well, I do a whole lecture so. on comics and the Twilight Zone. You know, maybe the, the single most famous episode of The Twilight Zone is I, the Beholder, with the pig faces. And there's an EC comic story called The Ugly One, published seven years earlier, 1953. That's basically the same story. Oh, yeah. Now, Sterling was in the war. They all read comics. Sterling was into science fiction and fantasy. So I guarantee you he read comics. And his wife, his widow, who I interviewed years ago, she didn't say it specifically, but she kind of alluded to it because, remember, in that era, reading comics was not something a celebrity like Serling would have promoted. But the bottom line is you can't deny that these EC science fiction stories, which I'm sure he read because they were adapting Bradbury's stories in comic form. So let's assume Serling read them. Seven years later, he does Eye of the Beholder, amongst other episodes. You know, the half-hour format of the Twilight Zone with the surprise endings is equivalent to the eight-page EC stories that had their little surprise endings. Right. So the total carryover. But then in turn, in my lecture, Comic Books in the Twilight Zone, Jameis, I talk about how then after the Twilight Zone, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko start doing those amazing adult fantasy stories, which are five-pagers, that are probably all Ditko's ideas that Stanley just dialogued. Right. But they're all also there are direct knockoffs of Twilight Zone episodes. There's a Ditko story about the mannequins, living statues, the the last man on earth, time travel. So again, the Twilight Zone and by the way, the last issue of Amazing Adult Fantasy is a Twilight Zone version of a superhero story. <laughs> and that's that's Spider Man. Because the Twilight Zone twists at the end that he did not use his superpowers to save the one that he loved the most is the ironic twist that gave birth to Spider-Man when every other superhero before him, you know, the minute they got powers, I'll go fight crime. You know, so Ditko and Lee put that entirely on its head. But basically, Spider-Man is the influence of the Twilight Zone on comics and EC had an influence on the Twilight Zone. So once again, the Twilight Zone is the middle ground between what came before it and then how it influenced what's come after. Right. I mean, it's just sort of interesting when you start looking at sci-fi, how much everything dovetails really nicely into each other and just simply goes all over the place. All art, all history, you know, you name it, is building on what's come before. You know, what the layman considers original is really just the alchemical combination of two previously existing things. 
I call it the Reese's Peanut Butter School of Creation. <laughs> peanut butter existed, chocolate existed. Until Reese brought them together, you didn't have peanut butter cups. Right. The definition of surrealism is by André Breton, the, the French poet who founded the movement. Surrealism starts out as a literary movement way before it became a visual art form. And they wanted people to step back from their reality and look at it fresh after the horrors of World War I. But one of his definitions, and he wrote manifestos about surrealism, was surrealism was as beautiful as the unexpected meeting on a dissection table between an umbrella and a sewing machine. Now, while that sounds totally ridiculous or even Dada, what he was saying was, Surrealism is the result when you bring two different realities together that have nothing in common. And by bringing them together, you create a third reality, a new reality. It's like one plus one equals three, not two. Right. And by doing that, that's what – but when I read that description of surrealism, Jameis, that's the definition of all art, of anything created. You bring two things together together amongst other elements, of course, that have never been introduced properly. And when you do it and you add that little bit of substance X, as Professor X would call the Powerpuff Girls, when he mixed something into the concoction, you like how I'm going from the sacred to the profane? <laughs> that element of yourself is the kind of spice that makes the brew turn into something, quote, new. Right. Yeah, art, it's, you know, uh, you see it all over the place where you basically take two things, you know, so some of the two things is always going to be greater than some of their parts. Right. So, which is... All I'm saying is surreal, the definition of surrealism is the definition of all art or anything that's created. Right. So, yeah, sorry, it's just sort of weird when you actually start looking at how all the pieces connect and throughout the history yeah. and... Even when you yeah. look at something as something as simple as say like Twilight Zone, yes, and yeah, I think uh, he'd be surprised to see how popular it is. I mean, not only did it, it's gone into syndication pretty much every time. They've practically got a channel devoted to it, and it keeps coming back one way or another, either directly as Twilight Zone. In fact, uh, CBS just recently tried to redo that series. Or, did you watch? Not really. It's just I don't know. I I had to see them so I can talk about them. But have you not watched them? Not the current ones, no. Yeah, well, I, we should you should watch them and then we can have another podcast discussing. But <laughs> I think you were going to say was there are the direct uh, influences, like obviously the, all the Twilight Zone iterations of the last thirty plus years, and then there's the indirect ones like Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror which is actually a better homage to the Twilight Zone than the new Twilight Zone on CBS All Access by Jordan Peele, which, to make a long story short, I was, you know, and I think I speak for many other Twilight Zone fans, we were all a little disappointed with. Yeah, I think you're actually one of the more pleasant versions of that. So. What, meaning, what do you mean? Meaning, a lot more people have gotten a lot more uh, flamey. It's just towards what they've been saying. A lot more aggressive, a lot more insulting as to what... Um, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be nice in case uh, Jordan Peele is watching this podcast. But like I said, once you've watched them and then we do another podcast where we talk about 
the new Twilight Zone, which I think would be a great thing to talk about, uh, I might get a little nasty because there were a lot of bombs. Right. And like I said, you know, Black Mirror. Now, have you seen the Black Mirror episodes? Uh, yeah, in fact, I've, I'm caught up on that series. Yeah. Even the worst Black Mirror episodes, I think, are better. They show more originality, more um, – and again, because Charlie Brooker writes most of them, they're coming more from an individual sensibility, which is what we all thought the Jordan Peele thing was going to be. And maybe in some degree it is, but if this is the sensibility, um, I got some problems with it. But right. I think Brooker is paying better homage to the Twilight Zone through Black Mirror because the concept of Black Mirror, that it's all stories dealing with technology in the sort of near future, and usually technology run amok, that by giving it a, a very clear concept, and even though there's a lot of variation, obviously, within that concept, and by creatively taking on a challenge of writing um, most of the episodes himself, I think it's, again, it's a better homage to the Twilight Zone than any of the new Twilight Zones have been. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, he's managed to explore a lot of the area. Plus, he's in, for those of us who are like watching the little details, there's a lot of details that interlace every, almost yes. all the stories. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. He didn't have to do that, but I thought it was interesting as I watched more and more episodes that he was referencing. So it is this sort of Charlie Brooker, you know, future world sort of, which, like I said, is more. Listen, David Lynch's career has been more of an homage to the Twilight Zone than the new Twilight Zone. You know, <laughs> Mulholland Drive, which I believe is his masterpiece and was recently voted by the same people that vote, you know, whatever, the AFI top 100 list. They voted the best film of the 21st century is Mulholland Drive. And Mulholland Drive is basically Lynch's take on the Twilight Zone. And again, I can trace it back. It's the it's this classic episode called Shadow Play with Dennis Weaver as a guy being executed for murder. But from his point of view, he thinks it's a recurring nightmare he's having where the moment he gets electrocuted, he wakes up and then he repeats the nightmare again to the people in the jail. He's a prisoner who's gone nuts. Right. So this dual reality and then you get to the end of, uh, spoiler alert, the end of Shadow Play, and it turns out he was right. The scene begins again. You're in the courtroom. He's getting sentenced to death, except all the people are slightly different. The guy that was a prisoner is now the judge, and the guy who was the court reporter is now a juror. Well, again, if you know Mulholland Drive, that's the basic concept that Lynch played with when he rescued the story from a failed TV pilot into this accidental masterpiece. Yeah, I love how many uh, bad pilots make great movies. So, all right, trying to get this into the current controversy, which of course is the one we were discussing. Yeah, I've got, I'm, I've actually got a theme this month, which is it's, it's October. So, what's the theme? Uh, this is Inktober, the month-wise. Oh, right, right. 
which is really, I've got to get serious about it. I've got like four drawings done, and it's like the 15th. Um, not, that I'm an, not that I'm an illustrator by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I'm a photographer. That's my <laughs> visual art ghost. So what do you mean you have to do four illustrations? No, no, what I'm saying is is that with Inktober, you're trying to do one ink drawing a day. That's the entire, it's one of those uh, big art things that everybody gets together and it's supposed to spur people going in, you know, spur people's imagination and get them going in an artistic direction. Really? And it's just basically you're supposed to do one ink drawing a day. Ah. Uh, well, I've got like four done for the month so oh, far. Oh, wait, Inktober. Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Inktober. Yep. See, now I thought Inktober was purely about inking. It is. It is, Okay. Yeah, yeah, I see that on Facebook. People post that all the time, Inktober. So you've really you're 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 taking part in that? I usually do pretty well. I mean, I'd like to say I don't. I'm not an illustrator. Your drawings you can show me. Um, actually, I've got them on my Facebook page. No, yeah. but I mean, can you show me right now? Sure. Let me show you the really bad one. I did it in two seconds. Oh, great! Uh, of course, don't so hard stuff. I bet you're better than you. No, nah. can you see this? Yeah. Yeah, that's me. That's cool. So, and I've actually got him on my. I've actually got him on my dresser right now. But yeah. Listen, most people cannot draw anything. You know that. Oh, I can't draw a straight line. You know, it's because most people just don't draw. But I like anybody that draws. That's cool. Is that like your style, like a cartoony? Sort of style? Um, that was just me trying to actually copy an actual abominable snowman that's on my dresser right now. Well, what is your natural drawing style? Is it realism? Is it cartoony? Uh, I want. I don't really have one. I mean, sort of a cartoony realism. It's like that. It's a volcano you saw. You know, real simple. It basically gets to the point. And I try to avoid anything too crazy. And then what? And then what's your photography like? Is it advertising, commercial photography? Um, at this point, it's more just uh, more me just going out and grabbing pictures. Right. So more, yeah, more more art photography. Right. So I do things like you know the if I do like a rose bush, I won't just look at the rose. I'll look at the rose bush as a whole, and then start getting focused in on various parts of that rose bush. So. So the job of an artist is to make people stop and smell the rose bushes. So. So, uh, just out of curiosity, going back to the Martin Scorsese fun, um, yes. what is the exact history of the high art, low art thing? I mean, is it an actual one, or is it just something that just started and got avalanched well, into it? Well, funny you mention high art, low art, because there was a famous exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in 1992 called High and Low. And it was the first time the Museum of Modern Art, you know, which is the Church of Modern Art, basically, which, by the way, has never had a comic book art exhibition. So when future historians or aliens are going to look back and say to themselves, gee, was comic book art ever anointed, true, real, modern art? Let's check the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> and guess what? They're going to come away saying, nope, I guess not. Because there's never been an exhibition. But in the High and Low show, which was all about the Museum of Modern Art basically officially saying there are no more, the lines have been so blurred between high art and low art, which is really what pop art began, 
that was the revolution of pop art in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, I just lost my train of thought there when you got up. Um, yeah, it was the Museum of Modern Art basically saying there's no more distinctions between high art and low art. So comic book art is now in museums and, you know, Marvel Comics movies have taken over Hollywood and are making billions of dollars. Right. So, um, so as somebody that grew up with American popular culture and loving it, and I come from a generation, we always knew Norman Rockwell was a great artist, not just an illustrator. But right. the fine right. art world only anointed him in this century. I think right around 2000, the Guggenheim in New York had a major Rockwell retrospective. And I think that was the moment that Rockwell made it in. You know, Frank Frazetta, Robert Crumb, maybe Mobius. You know, there's a handful yeah. of comic artists that have, you know, really made it in the museum art world. So, but when I was a kid and growing up as an adolescent and going to art school, we always knew Frazetta was a great artist, not just an illustrator. And by the way, Nothing wrong with being a great illustrator yeah. as as a great artist. So even though, you know, we still have a long way to go in terms of getting the pop culture that I love fully accepted as the great art it is, um, you know, it is a big difference between, you know, 50 years ago, let's say. Yeah, it's really weird. I would, I would have expected they would have gone Rockwell a lot earlier. I mean, some of his art, like the little girl, the little black girl for Little Rock, for example, that image. Uh, some of his art is actually defined various eras. In a see, lot of you ways. see, but but Rockwell's critics. And by the way, I just had a recent discussion about this. There are art critics that still don't accept Rockwell. They still say, like what they would say about. You know, the little black girl is, hey, it was still an editorial illustration in a magazine or whatever it was. It was Rockwell being a, quote, illustrator, being, quote, told what to draw, you know, what right. to paint. Or, you know, and that has been used to base illustration out of the fine art world. Now, it's funny. I'm an illustrator working in a comic book style, and I'm a member of the side of illustrators. But the Society of Illustrators, for decades, never accepted anything that had a black outline around it. For decades, the Society of Illustrators only accepted artists who were painters. Why? Because the Society of Illustrators was always begging the art world above it, please accept us, look, we're painting too. So if you had a comic style, they never accepted that. But again, the last 10, 15, 20 years, and especially since the last 10 years when they merged with the Museum of Comics and Cartoon Art, right. now the Society of Illustrators is a major bastion of comic art. They just had a recent exhibition about 80 years of Batman. So ironically, comic art was always the low man on the totem pole, then came illustration, and then fine art on top. All those lines now have been blurred, right, or destroyed completely. Makes me wonder what they think of Alex Toth. Um. <laughs> but you know, see, it's funny you say that. By all rights, 
And if I could be the curator that the Museum of Modern Art would choose to mount its first major retrospective on comic art, there would be an Alex Toth room where I wouldn't, I would not only show the original art, but the whole room would be a black and white room that would look like you stepped into an Alex Toth, you know, drawing. Right. You'd go into the next room and it would be filled with Kirby machinery like you were stepping into the middle of a Jack Kirby Fantastic Four, you know, Phantasmagoria, if I can alliterate, thanks to Stan Lee. He who shall not be named, by the way. <laughs> but I digress. Sorry. It, it, yeah, here's where I love having that visual thing where you're basically going, how the heck would you do a Kirby-esque machine in real okay. life? But, you know. Well, but I'll tell you how you do it. You literally just follow his art. Some of that machinery are like Mobius strips. In reality, they they couldn't really be made or work, but a lot of it can. It's just nobody's actually tried. The last Thor movie, Ragnarok, they had a lot of Kirby influence, but no Hollywood set designer has yet taken Kirby's actual art and turned it into three dimensions. Once again, Jameis, if somebody anoints me and gives me a $200 million budget and lets me bring a Kirby world to life, you'll finally see Kirby machinery, Kirby tech, as we call it. You'll see Kirby crackle, you know, yeah. the way Kirby drew energy fields. Nobody's really been faithful to that. And using computer graphic technology really transformed that look of Kirby Crackle into three-dimensional special effects. First off, yeah, I can just see the art director would be like, wait, you want me to, you, no, seriously, you want me to make this? Into, yeah, I'm out of here. <laughs> but, no, but you see, it would be the exact opposite. <laughs> it would be, if you can give me the money, listen, the last Doctor Strange movie, uh, the last, the first Doctor Strange movie, we were hoping would have the look of Ditko's magical effects and things, but it didn't. It had, you know, it had a little bit of that, but it really had the art director and designers doing their own thing. It takes just as much money and effort to do bad art as it does to do good art or design. So if they had a budget to do the designs that they did, you can take that same budget and just study Ditko's work and bring that to life. I don't see any difference. It's all about your will and what you actually decide to do. Yeah, what he's following up that with is I've actually seen some models uh, that from Pinewood Studios that would actually be uh, some modelers from Pinewood Studios. It'd be fun to see take that on. Uh, yeah, but then again, I'm a, I love some of the stuff that I've seen in like in Red Dwarf, where they actually have tried to do some of the Kirby stuff. What is Red Dwarf? Uh, it's a British sci-fi comedy show. Really? Yeah. It has the distinction of being the longest long-running show in production, or longest-running sci-fi show in production ever. I've never heard of that. Is it on? Is it? I mean, I've never heard of it. Listen. It's I'm not a sci-fi expert by any means. Oh, yeah. But something at, like you're touting, I can't, like, why haven't we heard of this? 
it's actually somewhat it's this one of those shows that just simply goes all over the place. It basically out Doctor Who's Doctor Who. And okay. It's in a straight comedy. See now, somebody like me that's not a sci-fi sci-fi buff. Obviously, I've heard of Doctor Who. I'm just saying I've never heard of this red uh, dwarf thing. So it, you should post some of that on Facebook or something. Get people to know about. It. Probably will. Uh, just show you how hardcore the, the comedy goes. When I say that they've got the longest running sci-fi show, they've been around for like about what is it, 25, 30 years now, and they've only actually produced 10 seasons. Okay, but hold on a second. Hasn't Doctor Who been around longer? Uh, yeah, that's why I started throwing. I sorry, I have to throw in the comedy part. But, oh. But I, even then, with Doctor Who, you can actually argue that it's only been going for like what, almost like what, only a few relative years now. But that's because they, yeah, the division between the doctors and blah blah blah. So, but yeah, uh, it's just sort of surprising that Red Dwarf's been around as long as it has, but it has. It's only produced something like uh, maybe 80, 80 episodes or something like that. It literally basically. Well, look at Black Mirror. Black Mirror has gone on for five seasons. It's had nineteen episodes. So, but I'm looking at like three or four years between a season, basically. I mean, it was like the first four seasons. It's not quantity, it's quality. And Red Dwarf definitely has that. I mean, the last couple of seasons haven't been as great, but it's got some. It, everything you've ever wanted to see made fun of in a sci-fi setting, they go after it hardcore. It sounds like Mystery Science Theater. It acts up for a little bit better budget. <laughs> that and an actual plot to it. Okay. So, but, um, yeah, it's just sort of interesting, all the trivial controversies when it comes to sci-fi sci and comic book art when it comes to comparing it to actual real art. So, um, so I, basically, how do you feel about the Scorsese? I know how you feel about it. I'm just trying to get a little bit more conversation on that well as much as i am I'm a, I'm a comic book fan i grew up with comics they made me become an artist you know i've done books on comic history etc 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 scorsese is totally right how any comic book fan obviously hasn't seen enough great movies because how anybody can say that these comic book movies are great films. Like I said in my Facebook post, you have to have your head examined. I love a good comic book movie. I mean, there have only been a handful, like the first half of the Christopher Reeve movie. You know, maybe maybe Wonder Woman. Uh, you know, I'm very critical of the comic book movies in terms, have they transcended the genre to become great films? And this, to me, is the key thing. I hate Westerns. I am not a Western buff at all. I grew up with superheroes. Everything was about the future when I was growing up. Westerns were like the past. And yet, they were so big in America that at the time of the Twilight Zone, every other show on TV was a Western. So I hate Westerns. But you want to know something? I love the movie Shane. Why? Because I think Shane transcended... A, the genre of Western and became a great film. And in the history of film, when a genre film becomes a great film, it transcends a genre. Right. So 2001 right. A Space Odyssey is not, quote, just a great science fiction film. 
it so transcended a genre that it is now considered one of, if not the greatest movie ever made. I consider it the greatest movie ever made in color, and Citizen Kane is the greatest movie ever made in black and white. But to me, that's what that's meant when you say transcending a genre. King Kong was the first monster movie, let's say. But it's a great film because it transcended what became the kind of popcorn monster genre. So, you know, when we look at films or genre films like superhero films, you know, when does a superhero film become a great film? When does it transcend the genre? Now, the problem is fanboys who drool over these, specifically the Marvel movies, and because guys like Robert Downey and great actors have, are now acting in them, they fawn over these movies. Endgame, oh, it brought me to tears at the end. Are you kidding me? These movies, I call them endurance tests. They follow the numbers. That's part of the problem of genre. And I use the word problem in quotes. They have to hit their marks. There are no surprises. A great work of art, a great film, will a great director will take you somewhere. A great book. You start out. See, the, it, it agrees with me, the parakeet. <laughs> a great book. You know, they always say you have to get past the first hundred pages. Why? Because the writer is taking you from your present reality into the reality of the book and the story the writer's trying to tell you. And you didn't know until you got past the first hundred pages and all of a sudden you can't believe how fast you're turning the pages when you get caught up in the story. Right. A great movie should take you somewhere you didn't know you were going. But genre movies and these superhero movies, they don't do that. And I don't mean facile surface surprises. I mean truly surprising you, the audience, in the way the story is told. Look at a movie like Christopher Nolan's Memento. Why is that a great film and better than his Dark Knight trilogy, which these fanboys want to hold up? Oh, but these are great movies that just happen to be about Batman. No, they're not. They're Batman movies. But Memento was a great film because the whole convention of it, even though it might be called a genre film, oh, it was actually a detective story. It was a whodunit, really. But did it transcend a genre? Absolutely. Because the way it told the story was a way you had never seen a, Tory, a story told quite like that before. And it challenged you, the viewer, to keep up with it and to follow the director on this journey. I think of one of the greatest films of the 21st century for me is Hollywoodland, which is underrated. Maybe Ben Affleck's greatest film, which is a backhanded compliment, but I don't know if you saw that, but it's the, it's the story of George Reeves. You know, the guy who played Superman and right. about what was he murdered? Did he commit suicide? Given all of our conspiracy theory itis, you went into that movie thinking, based on everything you've read the last 50 years, that, oh, he didn't commit suicide. He was shot by Eddie Mannix, the Hollywood enforcer, because he was having an affair with Mannix's wife and blah, blah, blah. But what was brilliant about that movie, 
and why it's, it's a great work of art is that you went into that film thinking that's the story you were going to be told. And you know, the director and writer, they actually told that story, but they told other stories within that. And by the time you got to the end of the movie, you had been taken on a journey where you went in thinking the movie was going to go one way and you came out of it going, holy crap. Wow. And you came around, believe it or not, thinking, you know what? Maybe he did commit suicide. And that is why it's a great film. None of these Marvel movies, none of these superhero movies do that because they all have to follow that formula. The, the word formula is a, the definition of why it's not a great film. No great film follows a formula. Well, maybe I take that back. Genre is a formula, but when you transcend the genre, why is Shane, for me, the thinking man's Western, why is Shane, for me, a great film, a guy who hates Westerns? Because it's the perfect example of the white-hatted hero against the black-hatted villain. The gunfight at the end, that's the greatest gunfight in Western history. Show me a better final gunfight than that. Sorry, I'll defend that final gunfight with Jack Palance as the greatest gunfight. It's got the greatest saloon fight, which is another genre convention of the Western. Show me a better saloon fight than the one in Shane. But the greatest thing about Shane is the hero, Alan Ladd. He's the, in a weird way, the anti-hero. He's gentle, he's almost feminine. Now, you know, Alan Ladd might have wrestled, like a lot of actors, with being a closeted homosexual. James Dean, patterned his acting style more on Alan Ladd Shane than on Marlon Brando's, you know, Stanley Kowalski. Right. And James Dean also was probably bisexual as well. So this idea of the hero who eschewed violence, who, while he was the expert gunfighter, didn't want to use his guns. And he's only pushed to fight after he first turns the other cheek in a Christ-like way. Right, Alan right. Ladd's performance in Shane is so, is so immortal. You know, I get goosebumps thinking about it. But I only use that, and I'm rapsing poetic on Shane, because that is the greatest example of a genre film that transcends a genre and becomes a great film. The love triangle between Shane and the wife of the homesteader and the homesteader, are you kidding me? And yet, he never once touches Maureen O'Hara's hand, or whatever the actress's name was. And in the end, they shake hands. They don't even kiss. Right. Today's filmmakers would have had them having sex in the barn outside. But in Shane, you can tell she loves him. And he's fallen in love with her, and they never consummated at all. Do you see me getting passionate about this? And it's hard, it's, a, it's a hard movie not to get passionate about because there's a lot to that. I mean, right? There's a lot to unpack from that movie. I mean, it's also in the few westerns. These superhero movies, they don't do that. None of them do that. And and the fact that some people feel they do, they just haven't seen enough movies like Shane. They haven't seen the great films, but but for any real thinking, intelligent comic book fan who knows his movies, 
to claim that any of these superhero movies are great films, you've got to be kidding me. They're not cinema, you know, in the terms of great films as art. They aspire to be sort of, but none of them have done it. None of them. Yeah. They've done it in bits and pieces. You know, Wonder Woman with Gal Gadot, I thought in moments made me feel like, wow, like this is really great. Like, like you know, it, it, you know, it, it's make it's all about getting you to feel real feelings. When movies, when I say they're endurance tests, when everything follows the pattern, and then they got they have to have the big end of the universe scene at the end. You know, I said in my Facebook um, review about this. Some of the when Hollywood realizes that some of the greatest superhero stories are quiet, small stories. They're not all big end-of-the-world stories. And by the way, this is what killed the James Bond franchise. They always feel like they have to one-up the previous movie and make the explosions bigger. And that's the death of you know action. they got to keep doing that. Right. So right. these superhero movies, you know, none of them want to make a quieter story, a smaller story. Now, maybe on television, The Boys... Uh, the, you know, the new series that was on Amazon Prime, I thought it was brilliant. And I thought it did. Tra it transcended the genre of a modern take on superheroes and became great drama. If you saw it, the the build up to the final scene with um, what's the actress, uh, the blonde actress? I just forgot her name that played the female lead. Um, man, I just blanked on her. But the lead actor and her have a scene at the end of the series that's really breathtaking. Yeah. And should win them both Emmys, I think. But, you know, that's the first comic book series I've seen. And again, maybe with television, you can get more of the of the great art than you can get a big movie with all that money. Hollywood, you know, they feel like you have to have all the explosions and the big end of the universe scene to justify the budgets. But to me, maybe television will make comic book stories better because comic book stories are more episodic. And maybe in the smaller confines, look, look how great television's been the last 20 years, you know, since The Sopranos. Right, right. We are in a new golden age of television, which borders into Twilight Zone because – I claim that, you know, the greatest half-hour Twilight Zone episodes are great art, the art of television storytelling. So, you know, maybe this new Watchmen by J.J. Uh, Abrams, or who, is that who's doing it, or is it Damon Lindelof, one of those? He is Abrams, but... <laughs> Abrams. You know, maybe Watchmen will have some episodes that will be like the boys, that will transcend this kind of recent genre of you know, modern takes on superheroes, which has become, since the original Watchmen and Dark Knight, a genre onto its own. You see, and then there's, like, I come out of the Silver Age, this more innocent time of storytelling where it wasn't about <coughs> the, the dark side of superheroes. And nobody's really made a kind of a movie television version of that. I think the closest one was Big Hero 6, not the television version, but the movie. Right. I, th I thought it was a great superhero story, and I'm watching it thinking, why isn't this being done for Superman and Batman? 
Now, the Batman animated series by Bruce Timm, which I've lectured on and written articles on, the greatest episodes of that series did transcend the genre and become great stories that happened to be about Batman. You know, I wrote one of the first major articles about that series when it came out in 1992. As a graphic designer, I was also working with Print Magazine, the trade magazine, the graphic design field. And the series so blew my mind, I was talking about it to the editor of Print Magazine. And I said, you know, graphically, the series is brilliant. Let me do an article about that aspect of it. And I got to fly out to L.A. and interview Bruce Timm and Eric Radomski. And I wrote about the series. So, you know, that, because it was just great storytelling, that happened to be about Batman. I don't think Hollywood yet has made a movie that is a great movie that happens to be about superheroes. Whereas The Boys is that. The Boys is great drama that happens to be about superheroes. And that's what we need to see more of. I don't think we've seen it in the films, again, with maybe a handful of exceptions. You know what I mean? Where where I really felt something. Yeah. One of the major complaints about the X movies has been that there's been none of the football games. What is that? Football, yeah. One of the things that was infamous for the X-Men comics in the 80s and 90s was every so often they'd have the X-Men get together and just play football. Well, that comes from Kirby and the X-Men and even Thor. Kirby would always have a quiet moment of storytelling after his big end-of-world epics. Right. So maybe the greatest Fantastic Four story of the 60s of the Marvel Age is considered This Man, This Monster – FF number 51, which followed Kirby's Galactus Silver Surfer trilogy, which is considered the apex of the Marvel uh, Silver Age 1960s. He follows that epic where he creates Galactus and Silver Surfer with this quiet little story again. It maybe would not make a great movie because it's just a story, but it's like a one hour drama on television. And it's all about, you know, the bad guy that turns into a version of the thing and he wants to kill the Fantastic Four because he's envious and jealous of them. Blah, blah, blah. And at the end, you know, he sacrifices his life to save them because he repents. That arc is a classic arc of the bad person at the beginning of the story that goes through redemption and turns good. It's a great story by Kirby that lead dialogue that happens to be about the Fantastic Four. Right. That is how you transcend genre. What did Shakespeare say? The play's the thing. It's all about the story and what it makes you feel. I watch these superheroes movies out of my duty to the genre, but am I feeling anything? No. Am I getting an insight into the human condition? No. Is it doing for me what art should be doing? And by the way, which brings us to the Joker movie, which does that. The Joker movie transcends the genre of being a movie about a Batman villain to being a great movie about a guy that happens to be Batman's greatest villain. Right. So it's a simple formula, pun intended, of how you transcend genre. 
And I don't think any of these superhero movies with the, again, why do people talk about the first half of the Christopher Reeves first Superman movie? So many people remember that. Why? I'll tell you why. Not, not that you, you asked, but I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> You've seen the first Superman movie, the Christopher Reeve, the first one. Yep. I saw it in the movie theater. Now, the first half of the movie, up until Lex Luthor and, you know, Otis are introduced, which brings that kind of Batman TV show goofy villain, but we'll talk about that another time. Up until that point, the origin of Superman, it's like, it's like the Stations of the Cross. You know what all the Stations of the Cross of Superman's origin are. And the filmmakers had a, had a hard job. Everybody knows the story of Superman. How are we going to tell it in a fresh way that will transcend the genre? Well, that moment happened when Clark Kent has to leave Smallville. Why? Because in the comics, for decades, if you were a comic book reader, the way that was always pictured was Superboy in costume, was flying in the air, holding two suitcases with tears in his eyes, and back on the ground... The townspeople of Smallville made a giant cake, and it was always pink in comics. The frosting was always pink. And what did it say on it? Thank you, Superboy, for your years of service. You know, never forget us, Smallville, with all the townspeople around. And that was one comic book panel, you know? So I remember watching the first Superman movie in the theaters, I saw it 10 times in December of 1978, and it was all because of this scene. So you're kind of wondering in the back of your mind, how are they going to do that station of the cross when Clark Kent has to leave Smallville? All of a sudden, we get this Andrew Wyeth, Christina's world come to life with Clark standing on one side of the screen and, you know, the old Ma Kent on the other side, and I'm sitting there in the theater, my mind is being blown. The cinematography, the, the, the drama of the moment, the idea that he has to leave, and they're standing apart, meaning, again, that's how you design visually. If you're talking about separation, the great director, Richard Donner, and the cinematographer, Jeffrey Unsworth, they create this tableau of separation and, and leaving your parents and everything that represents in life. And then the camera, when they're done talking, the camera swirls and moves around the wheat fields and goes up over their heads into the horizon. Ugh. Have I, have I recreated that scene? Yeah. Yeah. Enough for you, Seamus. Definitely. The point is, is at that moment, the Superman movie transcended its genre and became a great film. Even if the rest of the movie, you know, became a hodgepodge of whatever, for that scene alone, it will be in the Hall of Fame or my personal Hall of Fame of great moments in movie history. Cool. Yeah, I think what we're I, sorry, you just gave me a lot of time to think. I think what we're missing from a lot of the superhero movies is, and we see a lot in Shane or any other classic movies, 
is that there's a definite stakes there. You know, you definitely show what the stakes are, and it goes through and shows what could be possibly won or what could be possibly lost. And it just isn't. That's why I go back to the X Men football games. You know, you've got this. These people are getting together. They're having fun. They're interacting as actual people, and you actually see why they're okay. Doing so what they're so doing. what you're basically saying is you have to treat superheroes like people. They are people. Yeah. So so look at Doctor Strange. You know, out of that tragedy, he was a surgeon that lost the use of his hands, and he becomes Doctor Strange. You know, that's such a rich story. That's such a rich uh, mind to explore. And with a great actor like Benedict Cumberbatch, had the same um, Todd Phillips style that they did the Joker with been applied to Doctor Strange, we would have gotten a Doctor Strange movie that transcended its genre. But we didn't. We got a good Doctor Strange movie with a great actor playing a genre role. But did I feel anything? Do I remember anything? Yeah, Tilda Swinton was cool as the Ancient One. You know, again, you've got these great actors, but you don't have a script. You don't, a great movie takes chances. It takes you where you don't know you're going versus the Stations of the Cross idea. And by the way, same thing with James Bond. You know that the first girl that he's going to be with is going to die because they have to follow the pattern. A great filmmaker, you know, Quentin Tarantino wanted to make a Bond movie set in the 1960s. Now, that would have been a great Bond movie had they <laughs> let him do it, but they didn't. My point is genre gets stuck in genre when it follows the formula. When you break out of the genre formula and surprise people, it transcends the genre. You know, people thought Skyfall, oh, was a great film. Again, well, maybe it had a couple elements. But again, the problem with the Bond movies is they feel trapped and constrained by the genre. And all of these superhero movies... You know, I was hoping Wonder Woman, because it was directed by a woman, starring a woman, maybe we would get a movie that refused to play by the rules of the superhero boy movies. Nope. It, it ended up following the pattern. And I know why. Because there's so much money. They have to do it. This is what people want. There's that cynical attitude. Give them, And people, people like to have their buttons pushed. It's like going to McDonald's. You know, every now and then I treat myself to a Big Mac. You can't have a Big Mac every day. It'll kill you. But once in a while, you get a craving and you get a Big Mac. And it's great. It's exactly, it tastes, that's the McDonald's formula that is successful. It gives you the taste you want exactly the way you want it no matter where you are. That's a beautiful thing, actually. You know, to reward you with what you want, you don't want surprises, you want that Big Mac. When you taste a McDonald's French fry, you're getting the perfect French fry. Everybody, Burger King, nobody's made shoestring fries quite like McDonald's. But would I mistake a, a Big Mac for a steak at Peter Luger's? Consider the best New York steak? No. I love both. I love a great steak and I like a Big Mac, but 
I would never claim a Big Mac is as great as a Peter Luger steak. Yes, it's great as a Big Mac, but you know what I mean? It's still a Big Mac. It's not a great steak. And yes, a great steak doesn't have the attributes of a Big Mac. A great baked potato is not shoestring fries. They're both potato. So you got to draw distinctions. Okay. We can't okay. mistake our love for comics and superheroes to cloud our judgment, which is basically what's happened with fanboys declaring, you know, Avengers Endgame. Oh, I cried at the end when Robert Downey died. Oh, like I didn't see that coming, as David Letterman used to say, coming down Fifth Avenue. You knew it was coming. It's There's no surprises. You only get great drama when it hits you, when you didn't expect it to hit you. That's great storytelling. You know, we all knew going into it, oh, Robert Downey's going to die. I mean, that genre, that's not great art. That's not great film. Cool. Any, clo any, any closing thoughts? Well, specifically about the, the Joker, the reason why we're having this discussion is because, and I thought it's ironic because not only was Scorsese, I think, involved, that he was like a, a silent partner in the film or something, but the whole film is an homage to his, what I believe is his masterpiece, which is King of Comedy in uh, 1982. It's not Goodfellas. It's not as, you know, gangster movies. And if you've never seen King of Comedy, I mean, it's such a brilliant film because it lays out the themes of our age alienate all the themes that the Joker was about. It paid homage to King of Comedy with a lot of Taxi Driver, obviously. So for Scorsese to come out and say comic book movies are not real cinema, I thought was a kind of a very sly way of promoting the Joker film. Because right. the Joker is a great film because Todd Phillips basically sat down with uh, whoever co-wrote it with him, uh, Scott Silver or somebody like that, and basically, I think the premise was, in the real world that we live in, what circumstances would create a psychotic, murderous villain like the Joker? These are things that Heath Ledger's performance hinted at. What Brian Boland and Alan Moore's killing joke hinted at with a more realistic version of Joker's origin. But what Phillips and Silver did with this one was sit down with Joaquin Phoenix, who should definitely win the Oscar for this performance, and basically say, we're going to try to show the world how a character like the Joker, if he really existed, which is really, again, the bottom line premise of The Watchmen. The last 30 plus years, we've been living in the genre of what if superheroes existed in the real world? Which, by the way, goes back to the revolution of Marvel Comics, which was the first realistic take on superheroes, where Spider-Man decides the minute he gets powers, I'm not going to go fight crime like those DC Comics idiots. I'm going to make money. He goes on TV. It was reality TV 50 years ahead of its time. But I digress. The point about Joker is it so brilliantly lays out what circumstances would create a Joker in a way that makes you feel something because of what finally a great actor is in a comic book movie 
and makes a great performance because it transcended its genre and became a great film about a character study of a murderous lunatic, but why he became a murderous lunatic. What does art do? It makes us understand the human condition. It gives us an insight into what makes us. It makes us reflect. Are we a little bit of the Joker? I, I mean, I got to tell you, there were moments in the Joker where I was reflecting on my own life and how, gee, there are times I feel isolated and alone, you know, and things like that. I mean, that's what great art does. You're supposed to look at a painting in a museum and feel something. Make it reflect back. Why are great songs, a songwriter writes a great song. Once it goes out in the airwaves, listeners take it and they inject themselves into it. That is the process of art itself. That's the cathartic process of art that makes us feel things. So to sum up, yeah, most superhero movies, if not all of them, don't really do that. But the Joker, ironically, about a villain. Now, can they do a can they do a movie like the Joker about a hero and really make us feel what the hero feels? That is the challenge. Because face it, a villain meteor, it's hard to act the hero. And that's why Sean Connery was always underrated as a great actor because the heroic role seems simpler to play. But it's not. It's very subtle. Whereas a villain can chew up the scenery a little bit. Oh, yeah. But I digress. And, of course, your uh, plug? My plug? Gee, I never thought of that. Well, <laughs> I did a book on comic book history, The Silver Age of Comic Art, um, which is treating the art of comic book art like great art. And in places, I take out the word balloons and I put the artist talking about the art, like on this Joe Kubert spread. Right. Um, you go to my website. It's linked to my um, book site where you can order a book directly from me and I'll sign it and sketch in it. Um, so it's arlenschumer.com. You know, make sure you spell Schumer like Chuck and Amy, S-C-H-U-M-E-R, and my first name, Arlen. And that's linked to my YouTube channel, uh, from my homepage, my Twilight Zone works, my works on Bruce Springsteen. They're all there. And then in terms of selling stuff, most of my illustrations um, and my Bruce Springsteen illustrations are on my merchandise site, which is called popcultureman.com. I, I secured that name like a dozen years ago. I never did anything with it because I consider myself kind of pop culture man. So that's where all of my um, posters and T-shirts of my illustrations are. So how's that for a plug? Pretty good. So, and of course, the dreaded, uh, if you liked what you heard and you want to hear a little bit more, get a few tips, get some interesting show notes, and I think the show notes on this episode are definitely going to be worth it, uh, please check me out at patreon.com slash twosparrows, T-W-O. And uh, thanks, for having, uh, thanks for coming on.